Welcome to episode eight of the LB podcast for Monday, September 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this week's episode, we talk about conservatives and cruelty and how they're modeling their political actions on the Trump administration in the US. I speak with Dr. Tessin Lada about the cuts that the Alberta UCP government has made to healthcare and why she's considering leaving the province. Plus, I speak with Ontario MPP Joel Hardin about the difficulties folks with disabilities have been facing in Ontario, his request to Doug Ford to apologize to folks with disabilities, and some of the controversy that he's generated being an activist. And later in the show, part four of our series on the Green Party leadership race. I speak with Dr. Courtney Howard about her candidacy, about her life in the North, and about some of the finer points of her platform. So I've been kind of struggling to characterize what's been going on in Ontario and Alberta the last few weeks, but going back a little bit further and looking at some of the other policies that have been enacted and some of the cuts that have been made to healthcare, education, and some of the way that the governments have been handling the pandemic lately, it's starting to make a little bit more sense. Whether we're talking about physicians or schools in Alberta, or we're talking about schools or people with disabilities in Ontario, it seems like in both cases, the governments just simply weren't prepared. And part of the reason why they weren't prepared also seems to be that they just don't care. Now, of course, we all know politicians put on a good show for the media, but it's their actions when they're not speaking to the media that really count. And their actions belie an underbelly of cruelty, of kicking people when they're down and making sure that we keep fighting amongst ourselves instead of fighting back against them. Whether it's folks with disabilities or with teachers, it doesn't really seem to matter to them. As long as they can give someone else to blame for their problems, they're totally fine with that. They don't care about you. They only care about themselves and the rich donors that help them get elected in the first place. safe reopening premier and dr lada does too she says quote first and foremost we must cap class sizes end quote she also stated quote parents should not have to decide between schools and safety end quote but that's exactly the choice that premier you're forcing on alberta families three quarters of a million of them premier doctors are telling you that you must cap class sizes to keep kids safe you have the money, you spent $4.7 billion on corporations, you just haven't made it a priority. So will you finally cap class sizes? Follow the doctor's advice. Joining me now on the show is a pediatrician and an assistant professor at the University of Alberta's Faculty of Medicine, uh, Dr. Taysine Latta. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I wanted to start by asking you about the thread that you posted on Twitter about two weeks ago now that prompted me to reach out to you in the first place. You said that you and your husband, you know, both pediatricians are considering leaving Alberta due to the Alberta conservative government's policies and direction. Tell us a little bit about why you've been thinking about doing that. 
Yeah, for sure. And so I'll just clarify. So I'm a pediatrician. My husband's actually a surgeon. Um, right. And we have a number of uh, family members that are physicians as well uh, that live in Alberta. And I think this is a general feeling amongst physicians in Alberta at the, at the moment is just feeling really demoralized, devalued, disrespected um, by the current government. And this has nothing to do with money. It has to do with feeling like we can't do our job well without the proper support um, and infrastructure from the government, which feels like it's being rapidly dismantled. And some of the legislation that's occurring to impact us is occurring at an alarming rate and will have really adverse effects on patient outcomes. And that's really what we worry about. So if you're in a place where you can't actually do your job well because it's so limited by what the government is providing for us, then it's really difficult to stay because you go into medicine to help the patients. And if you feel like you can't help the patients because of all these limitations, um, and on top of that, you don't have a contract with your employer and you're being um, devalued and uh, disparaged in the media, it's, it's, really, it's really demoralizing. I, I would say that's, that's the crux of it right now. And so what measures have the, have the government implemented as of late? Because I know that there's been quite a backlash to some of the policies that have been um, talked about, in, in particular, the letter that the Alberta uh, physicians um, signed off on when they voted uh, 98% no confidence in Tyler Shandro's performance. What lately has transpired that has made you um, come to this realization that the government really isn't looking out for patient care and physicians? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so many things that have transpired. And I think um, the first and foremost uh, important piece would be that uh, physicians in Alberta have always had a contract. So the Alberta Medical Association that represents us has always had a contract with the gover government in power at that time um, that dictates a number of things, uh, including um, pay and, you know, everything that a contract would normally outline. And um, Tyler Shandro actually passed a bill, Bill 21, that allowed him to unilaterally cancel our contract and our negotiations. So in the past, if there's been governments that um, we couldn't come to a negotiated agreement with, it's gone to arbitration. However, in this case, um, our Minister of Health terminated our contract in February and actually didn't notify us. So the Alberta Medical Association was uh, notified via the media coverage of it. That's how we found out that we have, have no contract. Um, the AMA has reached out a number of times to try to um, negotiate or go to arbitration, and they've even offered a 5% fee cut across every single specialty um, because we realize that there's budgetary constraints, um, but there's been no response to these requests. And so that was sort of, um, that was one of the things that's led to uh, physicians feeling really devalued and demoralized because um, we're essentially working without knowing what we, what we can expect, how we'll be regulated, what we'll be mandated to do or not to do. Um, and 
And there's been another bill, Bill 30, um, some of which has come into effect and some of which uh, will likely be passed later. And that actually gives the Minister of Health uh, more um, control over us rather than our governing, governing body, which is the College of Physicians and Sur Surgeons of Alberta. So Bill 30 would actually allow the Minister of Health to um, decide things like um, what kind of disciplinary action could be brought against physicians, uh, where they would be mandated to work, whether they could leave their workplace or not. Um, so for example, uh, you may have heard in Pincher Creek, a number of doctors gave notice, three months notice to leave, and they actually received several intimidating letters threatening to inform the college that they were leaving um, and uh, threatened with complaints against them, basically, to our governing body. Well, this bill actually uh, would make it so that our governing body would be the Minister of Health, which is quite scary for us, um, seeing as we feel there have been um, ethical violations and some of the things that the Minister of Health has been doing don't seem to be uh, in concert with optimizing patient care and patient outcomes. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so he would be given a lot of control. And one of the, the important aspects of Bill 30 is it would increase the public representation on our governing college, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. So from 25% to 50%. However, um, the Minister of Health would appoint these members. So he could appoint whoever he wants. Um, and these people would be in charge of um, our disciplinary action, and mandating our practices, um, and like I said, limiting whether we could actually leave our practices, which, um, you know, physicians shouldn't be held against their will to practice in a, in a community or in a infrastructure that they feel um, isn't uh, up to standard of care. So there's a lot of fear right now amongst physicians and a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then in terms of uh, impacting um, patient care, um, you know, there's a lot of things uh, that we're worried about. And one of them is um, budget cuts. So, um, you know, the current government is maintaining the health spending budget at the current levels and then cutting a lot of other um, support health services. And basically what that means is that with the growing and aging population, we're not increasing health spending. So we're actually falling really behind and wait times are going to increase. Um, patient outcomes are going to get worse. Um, there's simply not enough funding at the moment to maintain the level of healthcare we've had in the past. Um, the other major issue uh, is the, the push towards privatization of healthcare. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of research done in which uh, public funds were used for private healthcare centers, and private healthcare centers have actually been shown to have worse patient outcomes for a higher cost. So I actually have worked in the States. Um, I worked at the Mayo Clinic for a little while. And, you know, I've seen firsthand um, the costs that are associated with, with private clinics um, and private medicine. 
and they're astronomical. And so when, we, when we're moving towards this privatization, what we're doing is we're really increasing health disparities. So the most vulnerable populations in our community, those of low socioeconomic status, those that live in rural areas that already don't have access to doctors, they're going to be the ones that suffer the most. And that's why a lot of physicians are just feeling so um, hopeless about, about how they can help patients and, and how to improve patient care in this environment. And I think that brings me to the last point about the impact on patients, and that's physician burnout and brain drain, right? So, so how is it going to impact patient care if physicians leave? And they are leaving, um, you know, and they're leaving rural communities which already don't have physicians. So I used to do uh, an outreach clinic at in Cold Lake because they have zero pediatricians in Cold Lake. Um, and, and the wait lists were long. And now with physicians leaving rural areas, they're not going to have anybody to see. Um, and that's a major concern because they're not getting equal access to healthcare as those in cities. And that's just going to get worse. So a lot of things going on that, that, that can contribute to, to poorer health. And that's not the only issue that you've spoken out about uh, in recent weeks. Uh, there was also the uh, government plan um, for putting um, students back into school in September where the Minister of Education was uh, disagreeing with you know, physicians, among them yourself, that were calling for smaller class sizes for when uh, kids go back to school. And it's not just in Alberta. We're seeing this in Ontario. We're now seeing um, more criticisms come out uh, in British Columbia for their plan to send kids back to school. Why do you think that governments in both the you know, medical sector as well as in the education sector aren't listening to experts that actually know what they're talking about? That's a really good question. And it's one that I wonder myself because my feeling is that safety of children, families, the community, as well as the health, good health of our citizens is not a partisan issue. So, so it doesn't seem as though this should be a question of political ideology. Um, if a government is listening, if they're engaged, and if they're actually representing the citizens that voted them into office, um, one would think they would be engaged and collaborative in this sort of decision making. And so um, that's been a major concern as well. And there hasn't been um, a single time that I've actually heard a family or a teacher say, no, I'm completely comfortable with the current um, school re-entry plan. And so that tells me that the people that voted in these governments are saying, no, this is not what we want. We want to feel safe. Um, we, we want um, our kids to be able to go back to school because school is so essential for intellectual, social um, development, mental health, um, but voices aren't being heard. Um, and that's a real concern. And, you know, I think uh, importantly, um, you know, examples have been cited in other countries where things have gone well when schools have been opened. However, every community is unique. And Alberta, for example, right now in Edmonton has the highest number of active cases of COVID we've had to date. Um, and so leading medical journals, as well as a document produced by the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, all recommend that community transmission rates need to be low prior to a return to school. 
while they're not low enough in many provinces right now, um, they're still planning to return kids back to school. And if you're going to do that, you need measures in place to ensure that we're not risking the safety and health of our community, because this is really an issue of keeping our community healthy and safe. Now, in that vein, with kids going back to school and their parents, I would assume, are being told, when your kids are going back to school, we would expect you to go back to work as well. A lot of folks don't have jobs to go back to because they were laid off due to COVID, their jobs were restructured or the company folded. There's a lot of people that just simply can't go back to work. So a lot of them are going to either decide to keep their kids home and homeschool them, or they may not have that choice. And that really worries me, not just as someone who, you know, doesn't want this to get out of hand, but also, you know, I fear for the people that don't have that agency and the ability to make informed decisions because they're in desperate situations. And as you probably well know, as um, a trained physician, people don't make the best judgments when they're in fight or flight scenarios, when they're having to use that, you know, kind of lower brain to survive. And a lot of people are in survival mode right now. So that's really concerning all around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Chris, I think you've really hit the nail on the head um, with those comments. It's, it's really a matter of privilege. Many, many people don't have the privilege to choose whether to keep their kids at home or send them to school. Um, many are forced to send them to school because they have to go back to work. Um, they don't have that choice. And like you said, if they're super anxious about it, which most people are because there haven't been reassuring plans put into place that are appropriately funded and resourced, that anxiety trickles down to the kids. And so some of the kids are anxious about, many of the kids are anxious about going back to school, especially some of the older kids, you know, once you get into grade four or five, the ones that will be masking. And that's not good for our children, um, you know. And the other really important point, like you said, um, many people have lost their jobs. Many people are struggling. And this whole COVID pandemic has been a fight or flight um, response. And, and everyone's struggling. Um, and economically, emotionally, um, in all sorts of ways. And I think, you know, a, a really important thing that I read the other day was that women that have lost their jobs are actually not looking for new jobs because they're considering staying home to homeschool. So the number of women that are being pulled out of the workforce to do this is actually um, a huge impact on the economy, as well as a huge setback for women and for feminism, right? So, you know, finally, we're getting women um, into the workforce where we're trying to get them uh, equal pay. Um, you know, we're moving towards these, these goals and, and now we're, we're being set back in so many ways. It really feels like we're regressing in a lot of ways and that's very disappointing. So what's the next step now for you and for your family in terms of what options that you have? What are you looking towards uh, over the next couple of months? Um, are you looking for ways to deal with the system as it is now and hopefully help those people that you can help? Or are you looking to just um, find somewhere else to um, put your efforts in where you feel you'll have more impact? 
um, we're, we're actually looking to stay right now and we're looking to continue our, our advocacy, our activism. Um, we're hoping that we can amplify voices. Um, you know, we can, we can contribute to uh, platforms like yours that, that um, are making an impact, that are being heard, that are, um, you know, uh, change makers. Um, so we're hoping that that people will collaborate, that we can rise up together, that we can um, be heard louder and be stronger and hopefully um, have change come. Um, and so we're, we're here for now. Um, that's, that's not the case with the, the couple I posted they they are moving they have accepted jobs in BC um, there's a number of other friends that are doing the same um, but but for now we're here and we're going to try our best not you know for our patients but also for our community Hayseen Latta is a master of public health and a pediatrician with the University of Alberta you can find her on Twitter at Hayseen Latta thank you so much for joining me on the show today stay safe and I wish you all the best Thanks so much, Chris. Take care. Coming up, I speak with Joel Harden about the Ontario Disability Support Program and why it's woefully inadequate for those living with disabilities in Ontario. And later in the show, part four of our series on the Green Party leadership race. I speak with Dr. Courtney Howard about her election chances in the federal leadership race. Joining me now is the NDP MPP for Ottawa Centre, Joel Harden. Joel, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I want to start by asking you quickly about how you got started in politics and what made you want to run for office. Oh, boy. Uh, well, I'll try a brief answer to that question. So um, how I got started in politics was really two emotionally driven things when emotions and politics collide. So when I was an undergrad, um, I had a friend who came out to her family and was told, uh, if that's your lifestyle, don't come home. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reckon with it. It was 94. Uh, it was just hard. My, my, the church that I was raised in is also more socially conservative, but I couldn't even fathom the notion of my family never letting me come home. Um, so that it just turned me into an activist. I said, no, enough's enough. We need more education. So we we were doing stuff in Kingston on that front. And then I went to York University, um, which is like a fulcrum of activism. There's so much of it going on. And at that time, a previous conservative government led by then Premier Mike Harris decided to cut social assistance by 21.6%, like literally taking a fifth of the income out of the uh, you know monthly incomes of, of the poorest people, the most marginalized people in the province. And that was me when I was a kid. My mom was on social assistance with my brother when she got divorced from uh, her first partner. And uh, I took it personally. I was having nightmares uh, of uh, stuff disappearing from our fridge. And, you know, it, it really disturbed me at a personal level. So I, I went down to the legislature with no real plan. I had a couple of friends I'd met in grad school and they came with me. And when Mike Harris got up during question period, uh, I stood up and I started shouting at him from the gallery. And this nice security guard guy came up to me and kind of let me scream at him for about 45 seconds, which seemed like an eternity at the time. And I can't even remember what I said specifically. It was something about stop beating up on the poor. And I was taken to a holding cell in the center of uh, the legislature. And then 30 minutes later, immersion was all this media, like, why were you doing this? Who are you? And 
I just said, you know, I'm a student, I was on social assistance, I'm sick of politicians beating up on poor people. And then if I'm honest with you, uh, that was 1995. So when, you know, I was convinced with a fantastic supportive community to run uh, in 2018, I'd been through a lot of cynicism about the potential of, of politics. I've, I've had friends who are politicians, uh, Jack Layton and Olivia Chow are friends of mine, all of the folks who've been in office here, Paul Dewar, uh, Evelyn Gigantes, these are really wonderful people I've always held high respect for, but I was a social movement guy. I, um, I, I was happier over there and uh, you know, didn't really have a lot of faith in electoral politics, but it was actually the more recent electoral breakthroughs um, you know, that we saw uh, in Spain, that we've seen in England with Jeremy Corbyn, that we've seen all over the US, uh, parts of South America, uh, in the Middle East that made me think, you know, there, there's something to this. Like we can bring this energy into political parties and, and the membership of these parties is right for it. So I walked in my first day of work, Chris, uh, and I ironically met the same security guard who escorted me out of the building in 1995. Wow. And, how and so how was that, that exchange? It, it, it was really interesting. He just laughed and he said, Mr. Harden, you know who I am? And I said, I think I actually do recognize you. And he said, yeah, no, it's not going to be any trouble today, is there? And I said, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> in this environment are you going to tase me or something am i going to get oh man so we had a laugh and and i just it was at that moment and i mentioned it in my maiden speech in the legislature that i realized that the ontario legislature was kind of the beginning and uh more recent history for me i was coming back to a place where in many respects i'd started now this isn't the only time that uh you've been kind of in the public eye for something somewhat controversial. I, I recall a few months back, um, you attended a protest and took a photo with someone that had a uh, colorful uh, sentiment addressed to Premier Doug Ford on it. Yeah. And uh, you were actually chastised by many people, even within your own caucus. Can you tell us anything about that experience and what that taught you about the realities of electoral politics? Uh, that's a good question, Chris. So, I mean, just for context for your listeners, uh, this was a massive healthcare rally at one of our big stadiums in the city. This is pre-COVID time, so you could fit a bunch of people into a hockey arena back then. And it was healthcare workers, and it was healthcare workers showing up completely pissed about the circumstances in which they were working. Uh, you know, the hallway medicine, you know, geriatric patients being treated in television and entertainment rooms or in closets. And uh, particularly, I was talking to a lot of the paramedics that were relaying to me stories about, you know, trying to help folks in the middle of the opioid crisis. And the stuff just breaks your heart when you listen to it long enough. And I have been, I mean, we, our office, we're a bunch of community organizers in our office. We're a bunch of troublemakers in our office. Like we are constantly exposed to what's going on in the community. We're not in an isolated bubble. We are the community and we use our resources to help empower community organizing. And uh, so, you know, the stuff gets to you after a while, I'll be honest. And when I saw this gentleman, I'd heard about him. I show up with his F Doug Ford sign. Uh, I jumped in the fray, which is so livid. Uh, but I'll admit, you know, it wasn't the right decision. Uh, I, I said as much to the premier himself, you know, and for what it's worth, when I walked up to the premier and I said, look, I really, you know, we don't agree on anything, uh, but that doesn't justify me attacking you personally. Uh, sorry for doing that. And he said, it's done. You know, the premier said it's done. But holy shit, the media, Chris, the media wouldn't let that story go for three days. And it was all I could do to repress. I was just under advice from people I trust saying, you know, don't feed storage to apologize and uh, pivot here or pivot there, whatever comms professionals say. I mean, I really wanted to look at those reporters, Chris, and say, honestly, you want to talk about a sign? 
There's 92 people sleeping outside in my city. We have an opioid crisis ravaging our city where two or three people are dying a week. People are homeless. People can't get the health care they need. People can't get, uh, you know, the basic education they need if they're, they have a disability. Uh, seriously, this is what you want to talk about? But I didn't. You know, like I, I, one of those ones where you just, you stepped on the rake, so you take the punishment. Um, I think a lot of people are having their F. Doug Ford moment now in Ontario. If you look at the back to school debate, I mean, my brother's an occasional teacher in Kingston. He's remarked to me that he's had a few. Like, he doesn't know what he's going back to. Um, but I, I do think in, in politics, I have no problem being combative. I have no problem being passionate. But at the end of the day, we are human beings. And, uh, you know, we, we have to endeavor to treat each other as such. And, you know, that was a moment in which I slipped. So, so be it. Now, speaking of you know, folks being human and having that humanity. I want to ask you now about the recent comments that Doug Ford made about folks on ODSP and mm. folks who are disabled and mm. suggesting that he wants to help people get a job. Well, folks on disability in most cases can't work. In fact, um, about only 8% of Canadians can actually work even part-time that are on disability and right. yet their disability payments throughout the country are still far below the poverty line. So for yep. him to say something like that is really indicative of a government and a party that is really out of touch with how most people are living their lives, especially throughout this pandemic. Yeah. Well, and especially the 500,000 people who survive on the meager gruel that is the Ontario disability support program, Chris. I mean, that is absolutely right. Uh, if your listeners don't know what the maximum benefit someone on ODSP can get in Ontario is $1,129 a month. Uh, and I, you know, again, it was one of those moments where I, I, I'd heard this comment from people I work with. I was driving my son down to have a socially distant visit with my brother's family in Kingston. And I, I friggin' pulled the car over and I just belted one out uh, on the phone and I sent it up to the staff and I just, you know, where does this guy get off? You know, and I honestly think for someone born into his daddy's company that's never had to struggle for everything, which isn't to say the guy hasn't gone through trauma. I mean, he has. His brother suffered with addiction. His father, reports suggest, was a raging alcoholic. There was violence in his home growing up. The premier's grown up with certain experiences. We all do. But when it comes to living with a disability in the province of Ontario, I think he showed that he is completely out of touch. And it's not the first time there was a, an, a home for autistic people near his home in Etobicoke that he spoke out against in 2014, claiming it was a disturbance to the neighborhood that needed to be relocated. And I mean, I just think the premier has to meet directly with people with disabilities. And frankly, his government has a black eye already from the autism movement. They pushed him hard and, you know, they're still pushing him and I'm helping. Um, so look, it, there are two choices, I think, in this life. Chris, you know, you can decide to have empathy and listen to people if you're a politician, or you can decide to just sell your brand and be an egomaniac all the time. Uh, the premier seems to be on the second, you know, he's doing this aw shucks populism a lot, but if you peel it away, you know, when he makes a statement like that, get a job and you realize that, you know, folks on ODSP, they literally are living with such pain and such trauma on a day-to-day -day basis. They can't work. That's, that's worse than tone deaf. It's discriminatory. I asked him to apologize. He hasn't. We have a series of follow-ups that we will be doing um, here. Uh, maybe that's where you want to go in the conversation, but we are not letting up. Uh, you can't get away with saying this stuff. You can't get away with discriminatory prejudicial speech. And this kind of speech, for some reason, is sanctioned. And 
it ought to be called out. Uh, and we did call it out, and so did people from the disability rights community, and we're going to make him pay a price if he's not going to apologize. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because um, there have been folks on social media that have been very vocal in their expressions of frustration and anger. And I spoke with some of them uh, in regards to uh, ODSP and the issues that folks with disabilities are facing, including Stopgap Ottawa, as well as the folks who started the ODS poverty hashtag. They Mm -hmm. said that they also reached out to your office. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have conversations with them? And if so, how did those go? And how are they informing your um, push now to take this to the next step? So yes, uh, we've been in touch with, like, I mean, we're, we're talking in the wake of the Premier's comments, we got dozens and dozens of, of personal appeals, heartfelt, rending appeals from people. And, you know, our, our solution when we were met with outcry like this, this is what we did with the autism struggle, it's what we're doing right now with the back to school fight, with the pressure a lot of small businesses are under. We organize, like we listen, we try to set up uh different in COVID, normally we would set up town halls and organizing sessions where we could figure out a collective campaign to put pressure on the right people. So we're now doing that. So on the 26th of September, we're going to be having a town hall on disability rights. And uh, I I have my own podcast. We have our own podcast out of this office. It's called Troublemaker Radio. And we are going to be airing a segment as a kind of a prequel to that, um, giving our friends like Kenzie McCurdy at Stopgap and and others a platform, just saying, you know, how to make you feel to hear those comments. And, and we're going to be stirring it up. And look, if the premier thinks he can ignore disabled people, good luck. It doesn't work. These are people who have to fight for everything in their life, right? So they're, they're not a good group to pick on. I'm just going to warn the government if they happen to listen to your podcast. This is not a group you want to pick on. They're already angry after decades of legislative poverty. You know, if they had any even self-interest, they would think about ways to not mollify them, but to, to actually help people become what they want to be. I mean, people at the end of the day, whether you're, whether you have a disability or whether you don't, I mean, they, we want to be our fullest selves. We want that kind of society where everybody is, is allowed to exercise the fullest capacities of themselves. And um, th- this is what I, I hope, I mean, we'll see where the conversation goes, but this is where I hope we see the 26. We, we don't want a charity discussion. This is not a charity discussion. This is not a, we're going to tell our heart-rending story and make you feel bad discussion. People are telling me, look, I have rights. (laughs) Those rights are enshrined under the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. They're enshrined under international covenants to which Ontario and Canada has signed. If you're not going to give me my rights, then I'm going to organize. And I'll uh, I'll drop um, a resource for your listeners to tune into if they haven't already. There's a fantastic new movie, interestingly produced by the Obamas. I don't know what the connection is there, called Crip Camp. CRIP camp, C-R-I-P camp, and it talks about the origins of the American disability rights movement. And it is a fascinating story of an upper New York state uh, camp for people with disabilities, run by people with disabilities. And it talks about the origins of, uh, of the movement there. And um, you know, it's, it's worth a listen. If people want something to reflect upon the work, the, the people we're talking to, the people we're talking to are fighters, they're organizers. And, and we're, building, we're building a campaign, and uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to unleash it on a bigger stage. And uh, September 26th, people should tune in and, and listen to folks on the front lines. Joel Hardin is the Ontario NDP critic for people with disabilities, seniors, and accessibility. You can find him on Twitter at Joel Hardin, ONDP, and you can find him on his website, joelharden.ca. Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your evening. 
Hey, Chris, keep causing trouble. Thanks for what you do. No, I will. Coming up, I speak with Courtney Howard about the Green Party leadership race and her chances as a candidate in a crowded field of talent. Joining me now on the show is one of the Canadian Green Party candidates for leadership, Dr. Courtney Howard. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, I've been taking a look at your platform today and um, I noticed that uh, you're an emergency physician and a clinical associate professor as well as an expert on climate change. Um, so like some of the other candidates, I've noticed that um, you have a lot of qualifications in the fields that um, that you're studying, you're um, uh, renowned experts in your field, and yet you've chosen to run for political office. Tell us a little bit about where your professional experience motivated you to run for political office. It was really the pandemic that motivated me to run for office. So I've spent a lot of time uh, raising awareness around the health impacts of climate change. And that's because I live in one of the most rapidly warming places in the world. So here in Yellowknife, we're about two and a half degrees Celsius warmer than we were when an 80 year old elder was born. And I actually, because we live in the, I work in the home of the most northerly CT scanner in the middle part of uh, Canada. So that means we serve a population that goes all the way up above the Arctic Circle to Inuvik, uh, which is actually um, three degrees Celsius warmer than it was when an 80-year-old elder was born. Yeah, and it happened to be there actually where as a new locum, I, I had made a commitment to myself that after so many years of medical training, I, I didn't really feel like an adult. There were all sorts of issues I didn't know anything about. So I was, I had just embarked on a really broad program of reading. And so I happened to pick up a uh, book on the oil sands on my way up through the Edmonton airport. I thought, oh, I should, you know, read something about this. And I ended up going down a rabbit hole, um, you know, on the internet. And when I started doing a lit it showed that the Lancet, uh, just a few months prior to when I was doing this research, had said that climate change was the biggest health threat of the 21st century which was news to me, you know, they hadn't mentioned that in any of that training. And so I spent, that was about 10 years ago now. And so I've spent uh, the time since then doing research into wildfires and passing a tremendous number of resolutions of the Canadian Medical Association, asking them to take action on climate change, to support the phase out of coal fire power plants, to support research into um, the local health impacts of things like the, the oil sands, uh, to look into fracking, to get this into medical curricula. And through that kind of work um, and organizing work with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment have really done a lot of um, thinking about how best to create change. So I've done research, I've done policy work uh, here in Canada and also with the Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change. I was the international policy coordinator for a year. And then advocacy, you know, direct uh, interventions, trying to get, you know, cabinet ministers to, to, you know, see what some of the benefits can be of taking action on climate change. But then, you know, the pandemic hit and I had about seven different leadership roles um, at that part of the change making spectrum. And, you know, then you're watching, uh, you know, all of these different uh, respond to COVID and everybody has smart doctors. The UK's got really smart doctors. US has got really smart doctors. We've got smart doctors. 
And then it was so clear that the limiting factor in seeing evidence-based policy implemented really wasn't the doctors, um, it was the politicians. And we're in such a tight time window when it comes to climate change that it was really uh, what I needed sort of, you know, and see if I could uh, assume a leadership role at the part of the change-making spectrum where I think, um, you know, we have the best chance of having a big impact. Now, that uh, point of view and that level of advocacy and the, the direction that you took to becoming a politician and running for the leadership of the party is part of your platform, which, uh, again, I took a look at earlier today. And one of the... Um, platform planks that I think really talks about that is the evidence-based influence and that the ratio of meetings for for-profit and not-for-profit lobbyists is really skewed, as you point out. And the policy that we enact in our government really needs to change. And part of that is coming from relying too heavily on industry and their experts to inform public policy and more importantly, public funding, because we give away billions of dollars to oil and gas companies and we save you know, paltry sums for everyone else. So tell us a little bit about how your platform addresses some of those issues. Yeah, thanks. And that's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I actually have a, a paper on the lens of planetary health this week talking about this this change making so sort of not only trying to make the change you know the, the laundry list of things that we always you know try to to do but how do we actually change the structures so that we're more likely to bring those things to life and something that uh, I really was really struck by you know we work hard to get a meeting with decision makers as you know somebody who does policy work there you know you go to a lot of trouble to make a really evidence-based brief you get it nicely formatted if you're lucky uh, and you've got the right people doing outreach you know you may end up with one or two meetings with for instance the federal minister of health in a year and then we were partway into COVID. And uh, in my role as the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment President, so I'm taking a leave of absence from that to run for this, um, we were leaked a memo um, that the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers had sent to federal cabinet. And it referenced two previous meetings since just the start of COVID. And it was 13 pages long and a big table that just listed all of the different acts that they wanted suspended, all of the different changes that they wanted made to existing legislation. And it made so clear to me that the, ac the access that they have, and we know, you know, humans are humans. We know that relationships matter. Uh, we know that trust matters. We know that when we make decisions about something, we don't always have entire insight into why we're making them. We do a lot of work on the cognition in emergency medicine because there's such a high density of decision making in such a risky um, high interruption atmosphere that you really have to be quite conscious of the way you're making decisions as well as um, you know the decisions that you make. And so I'm thinking to myself, wow, like if these guys are seeing, you know, the decision makers that often that is going to change decisions, even if the decision makers themselves may not be entirely aware of the rationale or just have that general gestalt to, to want to pass what have you. And so 
we were really uh, fortunate to find that paper by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives that where they essentially did an audit of the uh, the ratio, as you were saying, of visits. And yeah, the fossil fuel industry was getting five visits for every one visit that a environmental NGO was getting. And you can only just imagine why, you know, when we look at the um, uh, subsidies that we've given since the beginning of COVID, we've spent an extra $16 billion subsidizing fossil fuels. And the last time I checked the, the tracker, it was only $2 billion subsidizing um, clean energy and an extra $625 million to daycare. So when you look at what's happened, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, families are like at home trying to take care of business, just trying to keep the wheels on their personal bus. Whereas industry had time to, to go make these changes. So to be clear, you know, I've been on the board of a lot of different uh, environmental NGOs and health NGOs. So I know what the budgets are like. There's no way we're ever going to have the same budget as a fossil fuel company in terms of lobbyists. However, our decision makers and the bureaucracy, they're public servants. And so we do have control over their time. And so what we have proposed is a one-to-one -one ratio uh, per decision maker, per staff member, in terms of visits by for-profit or not-for-profit um, actors on a given issue. And something else that we've proposed, so Dr. Jane Philpott, who is Minister of Health, when we were putting together the food guide, um, I, I was quite active uh, on behalf of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment in that process. So I wrote our submissions and I went to the consultations. We're really promoting a, you know, a diet that's healthy for the planet and people, so a really plant-rich diet. And we ended up at the end of that process. So Dr. Philpott essentially put up her sharp elbows according to everybody at Health Canada that I've spoken with, um, like mostly off the record, although this was well known publicly, and said absolutely no closed door meetings with uh, the food and beverage industry as we put this food policy together because there's such a conflict of interest. And on what is by all accounts uh, was quite a lot of pressure to back down from that. She, she stood her ground. And so I had the privilege at uh, the climate change negotiation a couple of years ago of watching, um, you know, a senior uh, Canadian bureaucrat basically showing the Canada food guide plate and taking a look at the Eat Lancet Commission's plate that was about to come out. And we were going back and forth and it looked almost exactly the same. So our food guide process ended up producing a product that was more or less exactly the same as the absolute best evidence the world was currently in a separate but parallel process. And it was because of essentially what, what Jane Philpott had done in terms of the process. And so we know it's possible. And so we've also proposed that during, um, you know, the formulation of very important pieces of public policy, for instance, in our platform, we proposed a Climate Change Accountability Act that would be similar to what uh, the UK has done, where they basically made a framework act that... Um, required legislators to legislate a carbon budget every five years and also formed a independent scientific advisory committee to do a continuous audit. See, was going to actually have them hit their targets. So if we were, for instance, going to be putting together a piece of legislation like that, that's so key for the climate, we would ask that that be done without closed door meetings with the industry that has a clear conflict of interest, which is the fossil industry. And so those are two concrete things that we propose to help
um, us do a better job of evidence-based influence. We've also proposed increasing funding for, for research, but ensuring that there is more of a policy arm and a communications arm to those research projects because, you know, I, I spend a lot of time um, both doing research and also trying to um, coach researchers uh, to have better poli uh, policy skills, to have better communication skills so that they can, you know, feel more comfortable interacting with policymakers and with media. But a lot of the time, that incentive is not aligned with their incentive for promotion at their university. So we need to start putting grants together that essentially encourage uh, researchers, you know, say a third of the money is supposed to go to policy work or communications work so that it becomes aligned with what they need to do to keep their job in the really competitive world of academia. So those are three things that we, and I, you know, I, I think that they could really make a big difference if implemented. Now, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of academia and of training folks um, to be more assertive in their communication. And you know, your example of Jane Philpott is a, is a good one. Now, when it comes to politics, however, as we've seen in recent campaigns, the political conversation is being diluted a lot in terms of the terminology that is acceptable during campaign time. And this happens, you know, even out notwithstanding the fact that we've seen what's going on down south and what you know trump has done in the us we've seen that trickle up into canada as well and even before that began it, you know we saw some of this sort of um watering down of language in the last uh, election when harper was prime minister we see a lot of candidates using very very targeted simple basic slogans and language to get their voters on side and to motivate them. Do you think that running a campaign that is focused on policy and focused on, you know, uh, academic studies and, um, and on furthering the conversation into a more, you know, evidence-based uh, policy drafting is going to take the conversation in a direction that is not going to turn more voters who may not really focus on those types of things. So what we've tried to do with the platform and with the campaign, and you know, who knows if we've succeeded or not, but is to have different levels of complexity and of messaging for each idea. So you might've noticed in the platform, like, you know, the full PDF is, I think it's 63 pages long. There's a gajillion um, footnotes. But then when you go to the website to look at the platform, it, it's all up in, um, you could just click on a video and see me, you know, doing two minutes on it. Or you could put, uh, click on a little detail and see about a paragraph, or you can click on a little more detail and see more. And we did run that past several communication people. I think, you know, we, we did that in about two months. So I have to say I'm pretty like, proud of what we managed to get done in two it's months. It's pretty impressive, I must say. <laughs> I have to agree. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I had, I had, uh, I'm lucky that my campaign manager is an engineer with a really, really good eye for design. And we were also able to uh, connect with some, a couple of really, really good graphic designers. And so that helped. But 
you know, if we had more time or if this was a national campaign, what we would do at that point would be to really start message testing in very specific um, uh, demographics, people who we would think would be interested to refine the message to, you know, if we say something that uh, doesn't make sense to people or that isn't, uh, you know, reading really clearly, um, we would change it. But that's one of the reasons why we tried to speak as much as possible to people's concerns. Um, you know, I, I've been really trying to avoid language that talks about just sort of general philosophy, um, talking, you know, this is about food, this is about um, safety, this is about uh, the climate, this is about your kid's future, because there's, there's a fair bit of evidence from, I've been lucky to work with some of the world's top communications uh, climate-related uh, researchers, Ed Maybach was actually on our uh, webcast last Thursday. You might want to take a look. He he's amazing. So he very much is is the uh, simple messages repeated often by trusted messengers uh, is how we get things across. And he has done a lot of work um, along with others that shows that communicating climate change in terms of health is the best way to make it real to people. Because all of a sudden we're not talking about polar bears. Uh, we're talking about something that is really immediate. Um, you know, it's the asthma exacerbations from the wildfire smoke in California or in BC. It's uh, evacuations and post-traumatic stress disorder from floods or fires. It's Lyme disease. It's, you know, your, your grandparents having a really hard time coping with the heat wave in Montreal. And so those are really tangible uh, impacts on people's lives that make it a lot more clear, okay, well, this is what's happening now. And then you know, we know that in Canada, we're committed to about two degrees more warming, um, just based on greenhouse gas emissions already in the atmosphere, because we're warming at double the rate. And so that, you know, when you when you make clear for people, uh, we have a little, you might have seen a little picture of a little baby on our website. So I find, you know, there, there's an extra step when we're asking people to do math based on a graph. And it's really different when you just show a picture of a baby and you say, okay, this is Matthias, you know, by the time he's in his early 20s, Canada is going to be two degrees warmer than it is now. That's near term, you know, as a parent, um, that is really important. So, so that just, you know, helps people to picture the world we're heading towards and therefore what we need to do in order to prepare. Because, you know, you look at that and you're thinking, you know, you've heard about the, the crops that got washed out by the heavy rains or you know, the farmers that are having trouble, you're like, okay, we need to really revamp our food security in order to protect Matthias. I think it just makes it much clearer. And so I'm not sure, you know, whether this, uh, I'm sure I'll look back in a couple of years and, and or even a couple of months and take a look at this platform and say, well, you know, we did that well, we didn't do that well, but I think it's heading in the right direction. Um, you know, I think we really need to have an evidence-based basis for what we're doing because we're in a bit of a state <laughs> with humanity right now where we are in the world and so I think you know in order to have our best outcome we need to harvest the smartest ideas of all the smart people have been doing research this whole time and apply it to the given situation and then filter that through communication evidence base and then use best practices comes to um, digital message testing uh, in different audiences to, to make sure that we're doing things well and make sure that we use artists the, the people who know who've gone to school uh, to figure out how to really move people's hearts in a way that, uh, you know, motivates them to take uh, storytelling. It's it's uh, quite the, I, I find it fascinating to think about how, how we could do that really, really well.
So this was our, our first uh, attempt, and uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll get better from here. Now, um, a couple of the things I noticed on the um, platform included uh, universal basic income, tax on wealth and offshore profits, um, as well as empowering folks in the community to become leaders, in particular women. And there's uh, a couple of really, really strong voices in this leadership campaign. What do you think that says about the Green Party going forward from here? Because typically in federal politics in general, men have always been party leaders. Elizabeth May, you know, broke a lot of you know barriers in that way for the Greens, um, along with a couple of other leaders from other parties. What do you think now is going to be the driving force of politics in the future with the Green Party? Well, I think it is very encouraging the diversity of voices that and very, very credible, talented people who have put their name forward for this race. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from all of them over the course of our many uh, now debates together. And I'm grateful for for that sort of pool. It's been interesting having these sequential debates at this time of rapid change. It's It's really led us to some degree of group consensus. I would say everybody agrees that a guaranteed basic income has to be a number one priority. I just don't see how we're going to keep our population safe um, and housed and fed during the multiple transitions that we have to come, you know, whether it has to do with COVID, whether it has to do with the actual economic fallout from COVID, whether it has to do with, um, you know, climate and transitioning to a low carbon economy, it really helps us move from, you know, the conversation we we're having pre-COVID about a just transition to a great transition that involves us um, transitioning to the world we're building together, you know, coming out of COVID. And so that has really, um, you know, really solidified. I think uh, we all, you know, we all are advocating for uh, strong climate work as well. But it's been really interesting actually going through some of these studies. There's from a couple different places. So one here in Canada and one also um, in uh, Europe, Europe. So the Canadian study showed that as we got an increased proportion of female decision makers at the provincial level, the mortality rate went down. You know, it's very hard to decrease the mortality rate. Um, there aren't a lot of medications I could give to people that actually decrease their mortality rate. So I read that. I was like, why don't we all know that? Um, and across countries, uh, there's evidence that female decision makers are more likely and across party lines, too. So so not, you know, not to the left, not to the right, but just across party lines, female politicians are more likely to take sort of pro-social decisions. So favoring health care related spending, favoring social programs, favoring the environment. That's important to know. Um, you know, we're at a moment of health crisis. So proportionally speaking, it seems to me it would make sense to elect more of the decision makers who are more likely to, you know, take, take action that favors work on that. And so I think, you know, but at the same time, you know, we're looking at the barriers for women to participate and, they're dealing with, uh, you know, the second shift at home, uh, which makes it tough for, for people sometimes to come out even to, um, you know, listen to a webcast like what we've been putting on, um, you know, make the gender pay gap, makes it more difficult to run for office. Um, and so what we're proposing is a campaign school up here in the NWT. They've had a really successful campaign school for women that our premier, who is currently the only female premier in Canada, Carolyn Cochran, credits as having been integral to her success, as well as to the inclusion of multiple other women on her cabinet. 
And so we've spoken with the people who run it and gotten some of, you know, an idea of what they did. And we were proposed within the Green Party, at least, to start um, running that, starting more or less the minute this leadership race is done, um, but opening it up to, to more uh, diverse voices. Because, you know, we know that uh, women, we've heard from other parties, tend to have to be asked multiple times, you know, before they will run for office. But there are co both concrete challenges that we can help people overcome, as well as confidence-related challenges. I've, I've been trying to coax scientists to do more advocacy and media training. Um, it's scary for them to, for instance, do a mock media interview, and when I, they'll sign up for, for the actual session, and then they'll kind of hide in the corner and not take their turn, <laughs> and I'll have to go run, and I'm like, come on, George, <laughs> this is why you're here, and it, it, there's this a little, it's a bit scary, but then I'll get emails from them later, like, Courtney, I'm so glad you did that, uh, I had my first media interview, and I felt confident enough to take it because of that training, so there, there's courage in change making, we prepare properly, you know, the, the, the courage gap um, and what what is required uh, is lessened. And so my hope is that knowing how important it is to have diverse voices around the table, we can take a really uh, concrete look at what the different skill sets are and help people master those time so that we, when we head into an election, they're just going to feel more, more ready and, and women and other people who have systemic barriers in terms of both their competence and their ability to um, access the resources required to successfully run for office will be more likely to take a step forward. Dr. Courtney Howard is an emergency room physician and the first female president of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. You can follow her on Twitter at Court G. Howard, and you can check out her website, drcourtneyhoward.ca. The leadership vote for the Green Party will be taking place on October the 4th. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and have yourself a pleasant evening and stay safe. Thanks. That was a good conversation. I enjoyed that. Great questions. Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today. Well, that's it for episode eight of the LB podcast. I'd like to thank Courtney Howard, Joel Harden, and Taysin Latta for being guests on the show this week. And I'd also like to thank all of our subscribers on Patreon, as well as all of our followers on social media. Don't forget to follow us on our website, leftbehindpodcast.com, as well as subscribe to the new Harbinger Media Network on their website, harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye for now.